The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter. I'm going to be your host for today. We are talking today about heavy menstrual bleeding. And I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Maria Carter, who is a pediatric hematologist here at Cincinnati Children's. Hi, Dr. Carter. Thanks for being here. No, thank you for having me today. So glad you're here. And we have a special treat today. A patient named Margo D'Agostino is here with us to share her journey. Margo, thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so, like I said, special treat to have a patient here, but really excited to um, to dive into Margot's story that she's here to share with us, as well as to learn a bit about um, bleeding in general and bleeding disorders. Um, and then we're kind of, you know, prefacing that with the heavy menstrual bleeding, which leads us to Margot's story. Um so, Dr. Carter, could I start with you? Will you just tell us a little bit about what a pediatric hematologist does? Yes, of course. Um, we, as pediatric hematologists, really care for any type of blood disorders um, in kids. And most specifically, um, we one of the areas is evaluating bleeding disorders in kids as well. Fantastic. And, Margo, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Margo. I recently graduated from college and I'm now looking at law school, but I have been a patient of Cincinnati Children's since I was very young and recently was diagnosed with Von Willebrand's disease. Uh, it's been quite a journey to get to this diagnosis, but it's helped me understand myself, my health, and then how patients can advocate for ourselves better. I love that. I love patients who advocate for themselves are like my heart. It's amazing. Um, so we're so glad you're here. So Dr. Carter, I'm going to start with you. Will you share with us what is a typical experience that girls should have when they first start menstruating? Um, yeah, so that's that's a really interesting question. I think uh, every person is different, so it's very hard to sort of conceptualize specifically what should be normal for every person. During the first few months of periods, periods can be irregular, but we do want um, whenever a person does have a period for them not to be very lengthy or for their flow to be very, very heavy. Those are two things that we sort of look out for just to make sure that things are within the normal range of order of uh, frequency and quantity of bleeding. And I'd say this seems to be one of like the biggest hindrances to like for myself when it came to understanding what normal was. Um, I grew up in a household where I was able to be open about when my period was happening. I could talk to my mom about how heavy it was and the cramps were awful. You know, I felt very not myself when I was on my cycle. But to her, also potentially having a bleeding disorder but not realizing it, never having been diagnosed, that was normal to her as well. So she came in with suggestions for me, you know, period, uh, like period products, pads, tampons, mm -hmm. chocolates, things to make me feel better. But she didn't recognize that it wasn't normal either because she had always, that was her normal as well. And so the fact that we don't have an understanding of what normal is for the greater like personhood, what all people experience, whatever's happening to us can be, seems normal. And mm -hmm. unless you have someone else to tell us that, that's 
very scary. Yes. And I appreciate you, uh, Margot, mentioning that because that's one of the biggest issues that we encounter in clinic is the normalization of these symptoms. It's uh, it's usually many of these bleeding disorders are hereditary, like they're passed on from generation to generation. So mothers are just used to seeing these heavy menstrual bleeding. And so they think this is normal for their child to also have this heavy menstrual bleeding. And the other thing that um, we sort of encounter as well, which is really nice that in your family wasn't the case, is that many patients in families consider heavy menstrual bleeding or bleeding in general as a taboo type Mm -hmm. conversation. Margo, will you tell us a little bit about what your first menstruation experiences were like? Yeah. My first menstruation uh, experiences were always very positive. My mom was very always very open with me about what I should expect, not to feel shame, not to have that taboo, um, which I was very lucky to have. You know, she gave me books about it. Um, my mom's also a medical writer, so she was very excited. She had a little pamphlet on how to put in your first tampon that she gave to me, which, of course, as a young girl was mortifying that my mom wrote this for us. But she was always very open. My periods were very, very heavy, though. Um, but if you'd never experienced anything else, that seemed normal. So I was, you know, on a regular cycle. I had, you know, irregular for about the first year, but then I had regularized, and they were heavy, though. But I never realized that that was something I should keep an eye on or expect something else. So, Dr. Carter, does the age at which um, a, a girl starts the period have any effect on how heavy the bleeding will be for her through her lifetime? So usually, no. It really doesn't. Uh, it's, age is really not determinant of how heavy menstrual bleeding should be in a patient. And how can you tell the difference between typical heavy bleeding and bleeding that might be an indication of a blood disorder of some type? Um, So, you know, if we were to read the books, I think there is specific numbers, specific quantity, but I think we need to, um, I think the best way to answer this question is we need to see every person as an individual and listen to them and ask them, first of all, do you feel that your menstrual bleeding is heavy? Because heavy is very different from one person to another. But if we were to sort of conceptualize and have a little bit of a timetable of what is heavy, we usually say any any person who starts to report heavy or menstrual bleeding for more than five to seven days, that's slightly prolonged. And then the fact that they're if they're changing their sanitary protection quite frequently, maybe every hour, every two, every three. And then the other thing that is very important to also take into consideration is, you know, what type of sanitary protection are you using? Are you using, like, the heavy-duty ones? Are you even using sometimes two forms of protection, such as tampons and pads? So I think characterizing what what menstrual um, products they're using really helps to determine how heavy or not their menstrual periods are. So, Margo, I'm going to come to you for a second. And... Um, you shared with us at the beginning that you um, have recently been diagnosed with von Willebrand's disease, and but it was a whole journey um, to get there. When did you first become concerned with how much bleeding you had during your periods? It's interesting because the bleeding itself was never what created the concern. That was still normal to me all throughout my life. You know, I would bleed for seven to 10 days. It would be heavy for all seven usually. I never, 
I always thought it was silly that they had these like lighter products available because I never used them. And I thought no one did. I thought they were just superfluous products. Um, but it was other things, like other symptoms. My, I would bruise incredibly, incredibly easy, um, easily. I would, I had hypermobility. My joints were very, very stretchy. Um, little things that I never thought were connected until I went off to college and I had a very close friend and I was, you know, bemoaning the fact that I was on my period during finals week. And she, you know, offered me some Midol and wanted to know like, hey, you know, like you have been on your period for over a week now. I go, yeah. And I didn't realize that she was implying that that was not normal. And we talked about it. She talked to me about what hers were like. She goes, I know it's different for everyone, but this seems really weird. Like this seems to the point that like your foundation is lighter by the end of your period because you've lost so much blood. Um, and I'm like, okay, that is kind of weird. So then I ended up having to go out, talk to doctors, talk to my parents, see what, you know, maybe could be an explanation for this. But it really was this external factor, you know, outside of my family, outside of the medical community to say, that doesn't sound normal. That mm -hmm. isn't what my experience is like at all. Um, it's just interesting that, you know, like mm -hmm. this non-medical person was the one to suggest that, yeah, maybe, maybe the things you're experiencing are connected and maybe you need to get it checked out. Dr. Carter, what's going through your mind as Margo is describing this experience to us? Um, so it, it really um, highlights the fact that we tend to normalize our symptoms. Um, and if it's, in the, if it's very frequent in the family and it's very common in the family, it, there's a lot of normalization of these symptoms. Um, and the other thing that I think is really interesting is the fact that you start to notice other bleeding symptoms, such as easy bruising. Um, some patients and some individuals who have bleeding disorders can have nosebleeds as well. They can have easy bruising. They can have other, for example, sometimes bleeding through their like stool or blood in the urine and so on, or even more bleeding when they have surgical procedures. Um, so all of those symptoms, I think, are important to take into consideration and sometimes it's hard to put them all together, um, but the more we sort of educate um, the, po the population and the more that people are aware of their symptoms and aware of what a bleeding disorder is, I think we can start recognizing more and more these symptoms in others. So Dr. Carter, sticking with you for just a second, what are some of the causes of abnormal bleeding? Um, I know that we talked about, you know, Margot's diagnosis in particular. Are there other reasons that somebody could have this super heavy abnormal period? Yes, for sure. Um, the coagulation system is made out of an array of different elements, one of which is a coagulation factor, um, which is like the von Willebrands. But aside from von Willebrands, we have a bunch of other coagulation factors that can be affected, could be decreased, and that could cause easy bruising, easy bleeding, heavy menstrual bleeding. But similar to that, you can have a platelet dysfunction. And if you have platelet dysfunctions, you can also have these bleeding symptoms. And then one of the other elements, which is very interesting, we're starting to recognize more and more is what Margot brought up. Um, the fact that there's individuals who have who are a little bit more stretchy, they're hypermobile, they're more flexible, that can also cause patients and people to have easy, easier bruise, bruising, um, heavier menstrual bleeding. And so a combination of all of these can also aggravate your symptoms. 
So you mentioned coagulation um, and the, the factors in the blood. Is that what causes um, blood to clot, is the coagulation? Yes. Um, so the coagulation is a, it's a, a perfect balance, right? Um, you w- don't want to tilt it one way or the other because if you tilt it one way, you bleed excessively. And if you tilt it the other way, you can clot. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we, ho- we hope our system to be a, a specific balance, um, but sometimes that's not the case. And are blood clots during menstruation um, something to be concerned about at all? So that's a, it's a tricky question, um, but yes. I think one of the things that we look at and we ask frequently with, when patients come in to see us for heavy menstrual bleeding is, how do you f- see any clots? Are they large in size? Large clots can be an indication that something might be going on and we should investigate further. So, Margo, coming back to you for a minute, what eventually led to your diagnosis of of von Willebrand's? I decided that I needed to understand what was going on in my body better. I needed to see if maybe, you know, this suggestion from a friend had something to it because the more I thought about it, the more I talked to people, the more my symptoms started to seem abnormal. Um, So I came to my mom. I asked her. You know, what are your experiences with bleeding? Because, you know, I've, I've taken AP bio. I know a little bit about some things. And I wanted to know, maybe this is hereditary. Maybe, you know, her definition of normal shouldn't be my definition as well. Um, she talked about how she had some severe trauma during childbirth that led to excessive bleeding. Um, but no one ever diagnosed her with anything. Um, so then I went and I tried to see a hematologist. I tried to understand maybe what this could be. And it took a couple of months, lots of tests. They tested my, I think, factor eight or factor nine. Mm-hmm, yes. Um, factor eight? Uh, factor eight and factor nine. Okay. Could, they could all be affected, not in von Willebrand's, but. Yeah, yes. and so they tested, you know, different, different factors in my blood. They tested my coagulation. Um, and eventually I did get that diagnosis. And it was well-timed because the first time I actually needed that diagnosis before a major surgical procedure, I had to get my wisdom teeth out. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. major, but it was going to be something that if I did have a bleeding disorder, we needed to have figured out. Um, So I went in ahead of time and I got um, some like pre-surgical drip (laughs) uh, from the Cincinnati Children's Group before I got my wisdom teeth out. And it made the surgery go by much easier. I didn't have excessive bleeding. um, And so my blood clotted more effectively. Interesting. So Dr. Carter, will you tell us a bit about like the medical definition of what is von Willebrand's and what's the the medication that Margo probably received um, before having her wisdom teeth out? Yes. um, So von Willebrand's disease is, interesting enough, one of the most common mild bleeding disorders in the world. Um, And the sort of the medical etiology of it is you make von Willebrand, which is a coagulation factor, and you can have uh, different types of von Willebrands. Depending on what is affected in the factor itself, you can have type 1, type 2, or type 3. So type 1 and type 3 is mostly a decreased amount of production of von Willebrands versus 2, you're making a good amount, but it just doesn't work properly. Um, so that's sort of the main definition and um, of von Willebrands. And then in regards to therapy, well, one of the easiest things that, that we can do for, for, our, for our patients and individuals with von Willebrand's disease is giving back what is deficient. 
So there is a medication, for example, called Humate P that's a fact, it's Von Willebrand factor, and we give that back um, prior to procedures or after procedures. But then aside from that, there's another medication called DDAVP that we use in a specific subtype, usually in type 1 Von Willebrand's disease patients um, that have um, Von Willebrand's disease. And what it does, it just sort of stimulates the body to produce more of that Von Willebrand. So, Margo, do you know which of the three yours is? Yeah, I am type 1. Okay. um, And I actually did get that DDAVP. Um, The second you said it, I'm like, that's it. I remembered it. Uh Um, And so I had that before my wisdom teeth removal um, to help, you know, make sure that everything went properly. So how do you feel like your quality of life has has changed since you know what's going on and know that there are treatments available for you? I think physically, um, knowing what's going on obviously helps me avoid things that could be bad for me, you know, like the kind of pain medication I'm taking even, you know, like I'm avoiding things that could be blood thinners. Um, and so I take, you know, less aspirin and more Tylenol um, if I need it. I avoid things that are going to be especially, you know, strenuous on my body and my joints. Um, but then there's also the mental factor of it. You know, mentally, I'm at a much stronger place because I understand what's going on with my body. I'm not scared that something could go wrong, and I don't understand why. I have a bigger support system of doctors and family members who understand my my situation as well, and I'm very grateful for that. So, Dr. Carter. I- so glad to hear that Margot is in a much better place now than she was. Um, can you tell us about long-term effects of heavy menstrual bleeding? Because this took a while to, to figure out what was going on and have those treatments for her. Is there anything that, um, you know, her body has experienced or that somebody who doesn't have a diagnosis yet might be experiencing? So one of the things that, um, as I think Margot mentioned, is quality of life. Um, just the fact that uh, patients who can have heavy menstrual bleeding as a consequence of an underlying bleeding disorder, they can, that can cause them to have anemia. And anemia in itself can cause significant fatigue, not being able to focus, um, having a hard time at school, um, preventing you from doing other physical activities that you enjoy. That's one aspect in regards to the anemia. Then we go to the fact of if you have heavy menstrual bleeding, that limits your ability to play a specific sport because you are worried or scared that you're going to bleed too much or that you're going to stain or it's going to go through your clothes or the fact that you need to change it constantly and you can't continue playing or in a game. All those things affect for sure, quality of life and are, are very important elements. Um, and one of the other elements, which not less important than the rest, um, but if a person has an unexpected surgical procedure or a, um, or a scheduled surgical procedure and they do not know that they have an underlying mm, bleeding disorder, then that could put them at risk of excessive bleeding and bleeding complications from that surgical procedure. Um, so I think in, in regards to, to those elements, it's very important to diagnose um, bleeding disorders early on and knowing the consequences that it can cause not only physically but emotionally and psychologically for any individual who has these type of conditions. There's definitely a level of control you feel once you understand what's going on mm-hmm. um, and a level of control you feel 
like for example, I have like emergency tranexamic acid just in case I have a severe bleeding event. Um, I don't want to go to, like I don't need to go to the hospital for it, but I also don't want to put up with the bleeding um, in this specific instance. I have it. Mm-hmm. You know, in case something happens, I have control. I don't need to panic and understanding not only what is happening, but how I can protect myself and take care of myself is just so valuable. Yeah. And, you know, I applaud, uh, Margot, that decision that you took to sort of take control of your health and go and see a provider um, because that has helped you in so many other aspects. And it also just highlights that sometimes when our patient population is on the younger age, let's say 14 or 13, then the mother or the parent or another family member Um, if they can also work as their advocates. It's very important because if you notice that something is not right, always advocating for them and trying to bring that to attention to any of their medical providers is essential. So speaking of those supports and those moms, um, has your mom had her health looked into now too? She is definitely in the process of it. Ironically, she has worked with Cincinnati Children's. She's a writer, and she usually does a lot of medical writing. She has worked for the Bloodline newsletter for a really long time, you know, advocating for people with hemophilia and von Willebrand's disease for over 20 years. Um, And then it is my diagnosis that made her reevaluate her normal as well. So she's certainly in the process of, you know, hmm, rethinking the way that she she deals with her own bleeding and, you know, seeking out a diagnosis herself. So I'm curious about this hereditary factor. Are, are most bleeding disorders hereditary or is, um, are, are some of them just can happen to anyone? So many of them are hereditary, um, but other patients can have, be the first one to have a bleeding disorder. So although we some, the majority, many times we, and all patients, we ask them if there is a family history of a bleeding disorder, that doesn't necessarily mean if there is none that the patient might not have a bleeding disorder. And what are some of the other bleeding disorders that we should be aware of or that the public should be aware of? Um, so one is platelet dysfunction. So as I mentioned, um, when there is a platelet dysfunction, you can have heavier bleeding or easy bruising. Um, when you also have factor eight or factor nine deficiency, that is specifically called hemophilia. And that opens up a big, um, a big array of information um, because hemophilia previously was considered a male disease. It's X-linked, so meaning it's linked to chromosome, the X chromosome. Um, and females have two X chromosomes. So if you only if you have one affected, then you should have the other X to compensate. But we've learned recently and throughout the past few years that females can still have hemophilia or because they're carriers of hemophilia can have symptoms as a consequence. We've talked about bleeding disorders in the context of menstrual bleeding, but what are some of the other symptoms that people should be looking out for? Things to be looking out for is nosebleeds, uh, nosebleeds that are long or prolonged nosebleeds, um, frequent nosebleeds as well, easy bruising. Easy bruising not only in areas where you, you know, fall or hit yourself, such as your shins, but more unprovoked bruises, meaning bruises that you don't know where they came from, such as um, your 
abdomen your or your back or you're like oh wow I don't know where this bruise came from <laughs> like I went to sleep and I woke up and I have this bruise here those are the type of bruises that we start to consider hey is there something going on um, presence of a GI bleeds or gut bleeding that you don't know or you can't explain why the why you're having these bleeds or just non-specific bleeding from your urinary tract Mm -hmm. um, are things to look out for. And then the other thing, you know, when you brush your teeth, are you bleeding more from your gums? Um, or, you know, when you've had a previous surgical procedure, have you had more bleeding than expected? So all these symptoms put together um, should guide you to say, hey, should I be questioning these symptoms? Should I be looking out for help? And that sounds like what your friend did for you in college, Margo, was it took somebody else with the outsider view to say, hey, these things you're telling me don't really add up. Right. I think that's one of the challenges with uh, bleeding disorders. Because they're so based on what is normal, like we are looking for abnormal bruising, excessive bleeding. But if you don't know that you are on the outside of normal, you mm -hmm. know, that you are beyond what is expected, then you never think to question it. And so that's why I think it's so important to, you know, destigmatize the conversations about menstruation, especially bleeding in general, um, and talking about health with people outside of your family, outside of your immediate circle to kind of get a better sense of where you lie in, in like uh, surrounding normal. And one thing that I did want to highlight, um, some patients and some individuals just have heavy menstrual bleeding. And so the fact that you don't have nosebleeds or you don't have easy bruising um, or you don't have blood in your stool, your urine, and you only have heavy menstrual bleeding, you still could still possibly have an underlying bleeding disorder. And so that is also an indication to be seen. So, Margo, I'd love to know after you've, you know, you've made it through the point where you have a diagnosis and it sounds like things are are feeling better. If you if you could give advice to your younger self or to kids who might have just started their periods and they're kind of experiencing some of what you did, what would you share with them? I know it is such an awkward time in your life when you have, you know, like you're starting to bleed, you're developing, you're growing, and it's scary. But I would encourage, um, you know, like my younger self and all of the, the young people going through this to talk about it, to ask their friends, their family members, and especially their doctors, um, and making sure that what they're experiencing is normal. Getting that reassurance is very valuable, and understanding if maybe it is abnormal is also very valuable. And being able to talk about it, destigmatizing it, um, and then continuing to advocate for yourself. Sometimes you are going to get potentially um, feedback from a doctor that doesn't seem quite right to you. Um, I was misdiagnosed with PCOS while I was trying to understand because I had, you know, like weird periods and they diagnosed me with PCOS. But after a couple years, I realized that that diagnosis didn't seem to fit. So I went back, you know, I asked doctors again and I continued to advocate for myself to make sure I was getting the treatment I needed. I know that can be scary and daunting, um, but it is like it is invaluable when it comes to your health, your mental well-being, to be able to understand what's going on. And Dr. Carter, how about you? Any any thoughts, um, advice that you would share for um, families, for parents helping their daughters who might be experiencing some of these bleeding symptoms or the kids themselves? 
So one of the things I would uh, for sure highlight is opening up and having having open conversations about menstrual bleeding. Menstrual bleeding is a normal part of life and a normal part of any individual's, you know, history. And so talking about that openly is important, trying to normalize um, this sort of taboo um, conversation is very important because that really opens up the opportunity to know what is going on. Is there something going on that we should look into? Is there something we need to correct? Is this affecting your day-to-day life? Um, Especially another element that also is important is we found a lot of our patients um, could be bullied at school as a consequence of heavy menstrual bleeding, and we don't want that to happen. Um, Already school and adolescence is hard enough And we are here um, as physicians and as women um, and individuals who menstruate um, to advocate for each other and improve each other's life. And one final question for you, Dr. Carter. If there is someone, um, if there is a family, if there is a patient who's concerned, um, what are kind of the first steps to find the right providers to help figure it out? I would say talk to your primary care provider, let them know that this is a concern, that you're worried, and then once that is established and that conversation is held, we here at Children's um, are very happy to see patients where there is a concern of an underlying bleeding disorder. Um, specifically, I'm, I'm very happy to see females or individuals who menstruate um, to see, hey, do you have an underlying bleeding disorder? How can we improve your life? How can we improve your quality of life? Because that's the most important thing. We want to protect you from uh, like a complication from bleeding disorder, but we want to help you your day-to-day life. We want your life to be um, enjoyable. Any final thoughts before we wrap up today? I just think it's such an important first step to know yourself, you know, and essentially figuring out what's going on with you. And that is such an important goal to keep in mind as you traverse the medical system or are trying to get a diagnosis for yourself and also advocating for others, Um, making sure that you understand who you are, what is normal, and how you can best advocate for yourself and those around you. It's fantastic, thank you, Margo. So one of the things that resonated in my mind um, that Margot just brought up uh, was the fact that at times it's daunting to bring up these conversations to physicians. But I do want to um, bring up the fact that we as physicians are just human beings uh, and we experience many of these type of situations and symptoms as any others. And we are very open to listening to these symptoms so that we as a team, which we are, we're a team, um, discover, find out, and investigate what's going on so that we can help move forward. Fantastic words to end on from both of you. Thank you so much um, for being here, Dr. Carter. Appreciate your time. No, thank you for having us. This was a great conversation. It really was. It was. And thank you, Margo, for making yourself available to be here and uh, for joining us today to talk about this important topic. What a great opportunity. I'm just, I'm glad I could, I'm so glad I could be here. Thank you both. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. We'll see you next time.
This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on August 31st, 2023. The content of Young and Healthy is for informational and educational purposes only. This episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris, and our theme music was created by Stephen Greco. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.